Hey, and welcome to the Scott's Hill Podcast. We are currently in a series called, Did God Really Say? Enjoy the message. Well, good morning and welcome to Scott's Hill. So glad that you're able to join us here. Those of you who are watching us online, thank you for inviting us into your home. It's such a pleasure to join with you. want to invite you into our home. want to encourage you to come join with us live and in person on a Sunday morning. Looking forward to be able to seeing you. And those of you who are maybe first, second time guests, my name is Phil Ortigo. I serve as a senior pastor here. So good to be with you this morning. And it is Father's Day. And let me say happy Father's Day to all of our fathers out there. I would say this, that of all the titles that I could have received in my life, um, I would say that on the top three would that of being a dad. Number one would be a child of God. Secondly, would be a husband to Chris. And third would be a dad to my two kids, Ryan and Leslie. And let me just say this, any man can become a father, but not all fathers are dads. And so I want to encourage you, fathers, don't just be a father to your kids, be a dad to your kids, and let God use you to be the blessing and a channel to direct them where he desires them to go. Well, I love reading a lot of um, magazines about um, outdoor life, and especially in these kind of situations where you're in a tough place where you need to understand survival tactics. And some time ago, I read an article about how to survive an avalanche. Now, the good news is, living on the coast of, uh, of Southeast North Carolina, we don't have to worry about avalanches much here, do we? In fact, the good news is hardly anyone ever has to worry about an avalanche. Only 30 people a year die because of an avalanche. But I feel that since I brought this up, in case you ever find yourself in a situation where you're in an avalanche, I want to give you a very simple tip of how to survive an avalanche. If you find yourself covered with tons of snow, I want you to remember this simple tip. It's really simple, okay? Spit first, dig second. That's right. Spit first, dig second. It's that simple to survive an avalanche. Now, you might be thinking, now, now that doesn't make any sense When a person is in an avalanche, they're suddenly covered with tons of snow. They can't see, and they experience a thing called directional disorientation. When you are covered suddenly with snow and your body has been tumbling down a mountain, you have no idea which direction is up. And one of the most tempting things to do when you're in an avalanche is to feverishly start digging But if you have no direction in understanding which way is up, you could possibly dig your way into a worse situation. Uh, Popular Science Magazine chronicles one of these victims. When the rescue teams found this man, he had actually buried 30 feet deeper into the snow because of directional disorientation. Now, The way to get out of that situation is you have to understand a reference point. Because sometimes when you're covered with snow, you might be face down, you might be face up, you might be upside down, you might be facing a certain way. So this tip of spitting first and digging second is very important. Because no matter where you find yourself, even in an avalanche, gravity still works. And what you do is this, when you're under that snow, you wipe away the snow from your face and you spit. Okay, if you spit and the spit goes sideways, right, 
or left, then you're lying sideways and perpendicular to the surface. So if you spit and your spit falls to your right, you dig to your left. If it falls to your left, you dig to your right. If you spit and it goes over your head like this, then you're, f- you're head down, feet, feet up. So you got to turn around and dig. If you spit and it falls away from you, you're facing down, away from the surface. If you spit in your face, good news, you just got to dig up. <laughs> and so you spit first, and then you dig. Right now, so many of you want to spit, don't you? <laughs> I can see the saliva glands building up. And then the interesting thing is once you can discern where your reference point is, you know which direction to go. As I thought about that illustration, I was thinking about our own culture. There is a directional disorientation that has hit us today. We have people who have been covered with so much information and philosophy and cultural mores and all kinds of different thoughts that people in our culture today don't even know which way to dig. They don't know which way to go. They don't don't know whether they're upside down. They've lost sight of that which is true. And as a result, much of our culture is digging deeper and deeper and deeper away from the truth. We've been doing this series called, Did God Really Say? And in this series, for those of you who may be new to us here, we're looking at some of the top statements of our culture today, and we're measuring next to the Word of God and asking the question, did God really say that? Because a lot of the statements sound good. They sound very inspirational. They even sound like, yeah, I believe God could have said that very thing. But all of them are coming from the lies of the enemy because he was the very first one to ask the question in the Bible, did God really say? He put that question to Adam and Eve. And what we've been doing is looking at the different topics and putting them up to the side of God's word and say, okay, what does God's word say about this? The last two weeks, we looked at two really um, popular phrases in our culture, and we examined them. Two weeks ago, we looked at, God just wants me to be happy. God just wants me to be happy. Of course, that's a half-truth coming from the enemy. Of course, God wants us to be happy, but he wants us to be holy as well. I'm not going to go through this. I will say if you want to hear an incredible message about this from Jeff Poteet, go back online two weeks ago and check out what God says and his word says about this phrase. Last week, we looked at a popular one, follow your heart. Follow your heart. Again, I'm not jumping into all of this, but I will tell you this. Go back, listen online to that message that I brought last week, and you will come to understand that God never designed our hearts to be followed. He designed them to be led, and they're to be led by the Lord Jesus. Go back, listen to that, and you will understand that following your heart is the worst advice you can give to any person. But today, I want us to look at a third one. It is the most popular hashtag in our culture today. Matter of fact, you will hear people talking about this on social media. You're going to hear them talking about this on the news. You're going to hear people talking about this on your job, in our school systems. Everywhere we go, this hashtag is one of the most popular ones, and here's what it is. Live your truth. How many of you have heard that? How many of you are hearing this around our culture today? We hear it constantly. Live your truth. It sounds inspirational. sounds really good. Sounds almost intellectual, doesn't it? You live your truth. The problem is, how do you define what's right? What truth is right? And we're hearing it from all kinds of 
points in our culture. Think about the one person that most people attribute this phrase to. Her name is Oprah Winfrey. And Oprah has been saying this for some time now. And it actually came out on one of her shows, and it's been kind of one of the highlights. She says, what I know for sure is that you feel real joy in direct proportion to how connected you are to living your truth. In other words, real joy comes from you understanding and connecting to your truth. It's got to be your truth, okay? And so she's been speaking this for a long time. But long before Oprah said it, there was this guy by the name of Kamal Ravikant. And he is a guru on self-love and self-truth. He's been around for a long time, and he says, whatever human endeavor we choose, as long as we live our truth, it is success. If there's a definition of freedom, I think it's living life on your terms. He has been preaching this, seminars, people paying him hundreds of thousands of dollars to come and tell them to live their truth on their terms. But long before Kamal had long hair, there was this guy by the name of Buddha. Buddha said, follow the truth of the way. Reflect upon it. Make it your own. It will sustain you. No one saves us but ourselves. No one can and no one may. We ourselves must walk the path. The path of what? Of your truth. Now this is coming from an overweight, half-naked man <laughs> who ate and drank his own human waste. That's a guy I want to follow. Sign me up. And people are buying into it. And for centuries, people have been buying into this Live your truth. Now the question comes, how did we get here? How did we get to this point? I mean, it began in the garden when Satan tempted Adam and Eve and he said, did God really say that you would die? Oh, no, 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 no. You will not surely die because God knows this. The day that you eat of that fruit, your eyes will be open and you will know good and evil and you will be like God. In other words, you know what, Eve? You eat of this tree, you get to decide your truth. You become the master of your truth. You will know what's right. You will know what's good. And you will become like God. Now, here's the lie of the enemy. They were already like God. They were created in his image. And Satan twisted that and said, you can develop your own system, your own truth. How did we get here? Let me give you a progression of how we got to where we are today with this phrase being so popular. It began here. We all begin with absolute truth. Absolute truth is a standard of truth that applies to every person at every time in every situation in all circumstances. Absolute truth never changes. What is true yesterday is true today and will be true tomorrow. It never changes. It is absolute and it is a standard for all of humanity. That's absolute truth. But then a group of people came and began to question that. And they developed another system called moral relativism, which is the culture that we live in today. And moral relativism says there is no absolute truth. There is no one standard for all people. What's true of you and true for you may not be true for me. Truth is always relative to what I experience, what I believe, and how I live my life. And so therefore, truth is is 
relative. There are no absolutes. And our culture has begun to buy into that and buy into that and begin to question absolute truth. And now we're morally relativistic culture. And when you say there are no absolutes, the third thing that happens is we develop our individual truth. Since there's no truth, and since your truth is not my truth, I've got to discover what my truth is, and I'm going to live my truth. And then we have a culture that becomes so directionally disoriented that nobody knows what's up, what's down, what is the standard for humanity anymore, and we become like the people and judges that we're doing what's right in our what? Own eyes. And this directional disorientation begins to settle in. How has it impacted our culture? Let me give you some recent statistics. How moral relativism and people living their own truth has impacted the culture of today. 69% of Americans say sex between an unmarried man and an, a woman is morally acceptable. So there's no longer any sin with premarital sex. 42% believe sex between teenagers is morally acceptable. 43% say pornography is now morally acceptable. 19% view polygamy as morally acceptable. I don't know if that will ever increase because Jesus said no man can serve two masters, so I think that, that might not happen. But. A record 47% of Americans think abortion is morally acceptable. And then 70% support same-sex marriage in our culture today. Incredible shifts from 25 years ago. In the words of Dr. Phil, how's that working out for you? Here's how it plays out in our culture. The youth suicide rate is the highest it has been since the government began collecting such data in 1960. The percentage of children born out of wedlock has escalated from 8% in 1962 to 40% today. The odds that children in single-parent homes will live in poverty are very high. Studies show that as many as half of all divorces involve one party using pornography. More than 62 million babies have been killed by abortion since Roe v. Wade. Abortion is the leading cause of death in America above heart disease and cancer. But we live our truth. And when we live our truth, there's no specific direction. And we dig deeper and deeper and deeper from the truth. Jared Wilson, in his wonderful little book called The Gospel According to Satan, writes this. He says, everybody has their own truth, sitting in the ditch on the road to the real truth. And the master of deflection, Satan, will be glad to help you rationalize your way to it. He's there. And all these things sound good. And yet they move us into a depth of a place where we cannot survive. And here's the thing. If the devil can get you to focus on your truth, he will keep you from the truth. And that's where our culture is today. The Apostle Paul understood this. The Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4, if you have your Bibles, your devices, I want you to turn there right now. 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And we'll go through verse 5. 
The Apostle Paul is writing to one of his young pastors, a young man by the name of Timothy. Timothy is in the church in Ephesus. He is the pastor, one of the elders of the church in Ephesus. The Apostle Paul is in a prison cell. He's waiting to be executed by Nero because of the gospel. This is the last letter he's going to write, and he's writing it to young Timothy. And what is he doing with Timothy? He's reminding him of God's call in his life as a pastor, but he also warns him of this directional disorientation that is happening in their own culture. And he says, Timothy, here's what I want to warn you about. I want to remind you of some things. I want to warn you of something. And then I want to give you some information of how do you live in a morally relativistic culture. And the amazing thing is this. He's not just writing to young Timothy, but because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through Paul, he is writing to the Toms of our day of the Tabithas of our day, of the Teresas, of the Tuckers of our day. He's writing to us. And as we read these words, it is as though he has written them this morning. Because culture never really changes. It's always heading in a a direction opposite of an absolute truth. And Paul gives us some insight today about this whole concept of living your truth. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We ask that you would guide us in us, help us to understand the dangers of moral relativism. And Father, what we are called to do to combat it in our lives, in our families, in our church, and in our communities. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. He says, I charge you in the presence of God... And Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, Timothy. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. He's reminding him, Timothy, this is what you're called to do. You preach the word in the good times or in the tough times. And what you do is you instruct people, you correct people, you rebuke people, and you do this with with complete patience, bearing with people. He reminds them of that, then he gives them the warning. He says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. He says in this passage that there are three things, Timothy, that I want to warn you of. And all of them have to do with moral relativism. And here's what moral relativism ultimately leads to. It leads to personal and social dysfunction. When you look at the basis of moral relativism, it leads us to this personal dysfunction in a a society filled with dysfunction. Because it moves us away from truth. We find ourselves in an avalanche of untruths trying to find our way out with no reference point. And we end up suffocating in the midst of it. And he paints a picture here as a warning. He says, there are three things that moral relativism always does. And as I thought about this this week, and as we laid it as a template on our own culture, see if these things are not true. Number one. Moral relativism is intolerant towards biblical teaching. It's intolerant towards biblical teaching. He tells them, he says, listen, people will not endure sound teaching. 
He's saying, Timothy, there's going to come a time where people are going to reject your preaching. But not only are they going to reject it, they're not going to tolerate it anymore. They're not going to put up with it. The word endure means to bear up under. The word endure means to put up with. The word endure means to not, or is to tolerate. And in this point, not tolerate. Timothy, there's going to come a point where people are going to not only reject this gospel that you're preaching, but they're going to be intolerant towards it where it becomes hostile to you and to anyone who preaches it. We'll later find out how that became true in Timothy's life. But Paul is warning him and saying they will not put up with it. Think about our own culture today. I was doing some, some study this week, and Gallup has come up with a new poll, and here's what they discovered. They discovered that less than one out of four people, 24% of Americans today, believe the Bible is God's word. 24% believe the Bible is God's word. Only 24%. George Barner has recently come up with a study. This was last year, was most recent. He discovered that only 6% of Americans hold to a biblical worldview. That means that they use the Bible as the lens through which they look at life and they examine the situations of their own lives. Only 6% of people do that. Barner also came out with a new article entitled America's New Moral Code. And in that, that article, he says 66% of Americans embrace moral relativism. Two-thirds of Americans openly embrace the fact that there is no absolute truth. 21% of the people in that survey said they really haven't even considered it one way or the other. So only 12% of Americans hold to absolute truth in our culture today. Now you look at that, and you look at how people who hold to absolute truth in our culture are being treated. Think about that. You don't have to look far. The cancel culture has come out, hasn't it? The cancel culture has come out and saying, listen, if you hold to these things, you are morally reprehensible to us. In London, a man, a pastor, was arrested because he went to the streets outside of his church and began to preach from Genesis chapter 1 that marriage is designed by God to be a man and a woman for life. He got arrested for hate speech. He went to jail, handcuffed, taken to jail for preaching the truth of God's word. I told my wife, Chris, I said, listen, if they're going to arrest him for preaching the word of God, the next thing they're coming out is the word of God. Do you know what happened this week with the IRS? They have rejected a nonprofit organization giving them tax-exempt status because they're using the Scripture as the advice to guide them. And then it was accused of that organization that the Scriptures are relevant to one party only in the Republican Party. And they were denied access because of the teaching of God's Word. What we're seeing in a culture today that as moral relativism continues to grow that it is intolerant towards biblical Christianity. It's going to continue to come, and it's going to continue to attack. But here's the bad thing. When you live your truth and you live your truth, it no longer matters what party you're in. It no, matters, no longer matters what you believe. If your truth doesn't line up with my truth, I have every reason to counsel you, regardless of who you are. And there's no dialogue. There's no openness. There's no pursuit of what's right and what's true. 
So one thing that moral relativism always leads to is intolerance towards the gospel. Here's the second thing Paul warns him in. Moral relativism is instructed by personal passions. What drives moral relativism is my personal passions. He says, but they having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Now this is really interesting, the phrases that Paul uses in this. He says they have itching ears. When your ear itches, what do you typically do? Scratch it. How many of you have ever heard the, word, the phrase, I've got to scratch this itch? I've got to scratch this itch. I've got this itch. I've got this thing that I want fulfilled, and I need these certain things to scratch this itch. Paul is saying there are people who have immoral itches in their life, and they don't want absolute truth telling them that what they're doing is wrong, or that it's sinful, or it's displeasing to God. So if I reject absolute truth, then I have to create a new truth for myself. And this new truth will always scratch my itches. And if I have itches that are immoral or contrary to the word of God, then I've got to create a system that's going to make me feel good about my lifestyle. I don't want a system to judge my lifestyle and my choices I want a system that makes me feel good. And so therefore, not only do I want to create a system that will scratch my itch, I want to bring teachers, I want to bring instructors, I want to bring those people that will help guide me to scratch my itch without ever feeling shame or sin or unworthiness. And then what happens? We begin to fill our lives with people who are teaching us away from the truth. My goodness, is our culture filled with that or what? And the sad thing is this, our churches are being filled with this kind of mindset. I don't want somebody to come in here and preach against sin. That makes me feel unworthy. I don't want somebody to come in here and preach that I need to repent. That makes me feel unwanted. I don't want somebody to come in here and tell me that I need Jesus as my Savior. That's unnecessary. I want somebody to tell me how good I am and that God loves me regardless of what my lifestyle is and however I come to him that I'm always right and he's always good and there's always freedom. One old scholar wrote these words. I got I to read this. I didn't write it down. He says this. If people desire a calf to worship, a ministerial calf maker is readily found. Thought, wow, our churches are filled with ministerial calf makers today because we don't want people to feel uncomfortable about truth. Just this past week, somebody sent me a video. I'm not going to say who it is. It was from a local church in Wilmington, not the same denomination as we are. But this pastor made a point that he wanted to share with everyone on Facebook and all of his congregation. He began by saying, we need to repent of the way we have treated the LGBTQ community for telling them that their lifestyle is sinful. That's where he began. And then he says this. He says, and I'm quoting him, homosexuality is not a choice. 
It is who God made you to be. Who are we to challenge the creator God in what he creates? Now, his goal was to help LGBT people feel that they were welcomed in his church and that they would never be judged for their lifestyle. And he gave a public invitation for all of them to come to his safe harbor. Let me just say this. We are welcoming of all people at Scotts Hill, regardless of their background, regardless of their color, regardless of their heritage. We are welcoming and want to love all people regardless of who they are. But we are not about scratching itches. We're about telling the truth. And we're telling the truth in love, with sensitivity, with kindness, with goodness. Because the one thing they need the most is the truth. And the church that will not tell people truth is a church that is preparing people to go to hell with a smile on their face. You see, moral relativism says, no, we're going to create a system where you feel good. Because there's a God that would never, ever say that is sin. But here's a third thing he warns him of. Moral relativism is intellectually void of truth. It's void of truth. Where do you ultimately end up with moral relativism? You ultimately end up with intellectual dishonesty. You always do. Because what happens is you've got to push away all those things that are true. You've got to push away history. You've got to push away science. You've got to push away human experience. And you put all those things aside, and when you've created your own doctrine, then you've got to create your own experience, and then you're void of truth. He says this, and you will turn away from listening to the truth. The phrase turn away is a medical term. Here's the picture of it in the Greek. It is literally the dislocating of someone's shoulder. Or the dislocating of your elbow. Or the dislocating of your hip. Or the dislocating of your fingers. In other words, it is a violent act that you're trying to turn away from something so violently that you dislocate your body. And that which you're turning away from, you become a victim of your own system. And it destroys you. And he says they're going to believe myths. The word myth is a fable. The word myth is maybe some superstitious belief. The word myth also has in parentheses, you could say, are like old wives' tales. They're these old tales that have no fact or science or basis to it. But when you turn away from objective, absolute truth, you turn to stuff that is foolish. Think about it. Biology tells us that when it comes to gender, there's a binary choice, male, female. Today, there are countless choices for your gender, which has nothing to do with science or biology. We could go down the list and look at all of the different things, but here's the thing about moral relativism. It's intellectually dishonest. Here's why. It begins by saying, there are no absolutes. If somebody tells you, hey, there's no such thing as absolutes, ask him this question. Are you absolutely sure? <laughs> are you absolutely sure? 
They'll have to do one, two things. They say, yes, I am absolutely sure. Well, you've just dismantled your whole system because you've just stated an absolute. And you buried yourself with your argument. Or if they say, well, I don't really know. Well, then you're showing your ignorance. Because if you make a statement that there are no absolutes, you've just created an absolute. And it destroys everything that you stand on. So the question is, we can look at all the issues of society. What do we do as a body? What do we do as faith people? How do we stand against a morally relativistic culture that is telling you to live your truth? How do we teach our kids? How do we model this for our teenagers? How do we help our college students to understand? How do you walk past this? How do we navigate through this? The good thing is Paul tells us, verse 5, and for you, as for you, Timothy, hey, the world is going this way, but for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Timothy, four things. Tom, Tucker, Teresa, Tabitha, anybody else. Four things you need to do to avoid directional disorientation. Let me give them to you real quick. Number one, endeavor to be sober-minded. Make a commitment to be sober-minded. He said, Timothy, you be sober-minded. The word sober in the Greek means to be serious. It needs to be it's very critical, very thoughtful. To be sober-minded means to be sound in your thinking. And minded is speaking here of something that's biblically correct, something that's absolutely correct. Be sober-minded in that which is true. And what is true? The Word of God is true. The psalmist says the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Psalm 119, 160. And Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, praying for his disciples, in John chapter 17, says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is what? Truth. Your word is truth. So what do we do? Listen carefully. Believers, be sober-minded in the truth of God's word. This is so important for us in our culture because we're being bombarded with all of these philosophies of all of these different thoughts. And the world is telling us how to think and, and what do we need to do. And you know what we have the tendency of doing? We have the tendency of wanting to lash out on social media. We want to put something out on Twitter. We want to respond to all of the movements of our day without first thinking critically through it. I have some pastor friends who didn't want to be left out of all the discussions on Black Lives Matter or on critical race theory. And you know what they did? They immediately wanted to be on the bandwagon. I think for good purposes, they wanted to be sensitive to their people. They wanted to be sensitive to the culture. And so they made comments without fully investigating those organizations or those theories. And as a result, when they come back and they begin to see the bigger picture and they see what critical race theory is all about, then now all of a sudden they have to backpedal. Let me tell you what has happened to me. During this whole time last year, I've had people who have accused me of being liberal. I've accused me of not being a person of social justice. Why? Because I didn't immediately put things out on Twitter or on Instagram or my Facebook. The going temptation last year was this phrase. If you don't say something, you're complicit. 
And how many people jumped on the bandwagon of saying something without critically thinking through it first? And then what happens is I would rather say, have people think I'm complicit than to say something that's wrong. And so I'm very careful. And we are to think critically about this. We think through it. We walk through it. We line it up with the word of God. We see what does God's word say? And we put all the theories and the philosophies of men aside. It's okay to study them. It's okay to look at them. But at the end of the day, what does God's sober, authoritative, absolute truth say? And that's where we rest. Because I'm going to tell you, this is not the only things that are going to be coming in our culture. There are going to be many, many other things coming to us that's going to disguise itself as truth. And we must measure it to God's word first. Endeavor to be sound, sober in your thinking. Here's the second thing he tells Timothy. Endure suffering. Isn't that interesting? Endure suffering. Timothy, when you stand on the truth, you endure suffering. You endure the ridicule. You endure the, 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 the attacks on you. You endure the name calling. Because when you're standing on truth in a morally relativistic society, they will not tolerate you. They will cancel you. But you stand firm. Three times in this passage, in chapter 1, he says, endure hardship with me. In chapter 2, endure hardship as a soldier for Christ. In this one, Timothy, endure suffering three times in this letter. And you know what we know? That when Paul was ultimately executed by Nero, Timothy ends up in prison for the gospel. We find that out in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 23. The writer of Hebrews says, We rejoice that Timothy has been released from prison. Because he stood on the truth. Let me tell you what we need to do as a church. We stand on the truth, but we must endure suffering. I believe it's going to come. I believe it's going to continue to come. And I believe people are going to constantly attack you. And when they attack, we have the tendency to wanting to be silent. Instead of being silent, we must endure standing on truth. And not allow the intimidation tactics of a world that hates Jesus to intimidate us into silence. Here's the third thing he tells Timothy. Engage in sharing the truth. Share it. He says, do the work of an evangelist. I love that. The title evangelist was an office in the early church. We only see that that word used three times in the New Testament. And the only person we ever see identified as an evangelist is Philip. But in this passage, he's not saying be an evangelist. He says, do the work of an evangelist, which is a wonderful picture because he's not saying you have to be in an office of evangelism to be able to tell people about Jesus. No, no matter who you are as a believer, you do the work that an evangelist does. You tell people about Jesus. People listen, church listen, brothers and sisters listen. What our culture needs is the gospel. They need to hear about Jesus who is the truth, the way, and the life. Or the way, the truth, and the life. He is truth. And what we must always bring our conversations back to, no matter what they are, no matter what the issues are, it comes back to Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about what he did. I had a wonderful privilege two weeks ago of meeting with an elderly couple in their home and sharing Christ with them and leading them to faith in Christ. 
I had an opportunity of leading another lady who came to my office who was looking for the answers, and I shared Christ with her. She said, that's what I've been missing. And she's given her life to Christ. I have the opportunity to be building a relationship with my neighbor and talking with him. And this past week, he says, Phil, you and I need to have a serious conversation. I want to sit down and talk with you about this. The issue are not the issues of the culture. The issue is the issue of eternity. And his name is Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean we don't need to understand the culture. It doesn't mean we don't need to understand social injustice. It doesn't mean we don't understand the pain of people who have suffered wrongly in our culture. We understand it. The driving factor of it is sin. But Jesus is the only one who can deliver us. I would recommend you read a book by Vody Balcom called Fault Lines. Incredible book. Because he deals with biblical justice from a biblical perspective that is very helpful to see what the church needs to do to bring about justice in our culture. And most of the books that you're going to read on social justice have no solution. No solution. The answer is Jesus. It always is. And he always will be. Here's the fourth thing. Enjoy satisfaction from the truth. Where does my satisfaction derive from? Paul says, fulfill your ministry. Walk in the truth, Timothy. And the fulfillment of our lives comes as we walk in truth. Jesus said this to his disciples, if you abide in my word and my words abide in you, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now let let me be honest, church. Here's the part that we always quote. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Yeah, you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. We go about it, and we tell everybody that. You shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And Jesus says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. If you abide in my word, and my word abides in you, it's conditional, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You see, there's a big difference between living your truth and living the truth. The truth is grounded in the Word of God and manifested through the person of Jesus Christ. That is objective, authoritative, absolute for all people, at all times, in all places, in all circumstances, in all things. We may differ on our opinions of social justice in our culture, but we can never differ as a body on what the answer is. It's Jesus Christ. And this we believe. We believe. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, let me tell you, if you've never trusted Christ... You don't need what the culture has to offer. 
it will take you deeper and deeper and deeper into an avalanche of death with no remedy. You need Jesus. And I would say to you this morning, regardless of who you are, that He is your only hope. And I plead with you to surrender your life to Him. If you're a believer today and you're caught up in all of the voices of the world, let's take the spit test. Go to the reference point of truth. And it is always His Word. And it is always Jesus. Go to Him. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to close with a song. And then you'll be dismissed. I'm just go ahead and stand now. Father, would you and your Holy Spirit drown out the voices of the culture? And Father, may we hear you. May we hear you. And Father, may you affirm to us once and for all truth. And we rest in you. And Father, we take the words that Paul said to Timothy and we make them a reality in our own lives. And Father, as we walk in your truth, may we stand firmly in it. May we speak it regularly. May we be kind and gracious and loving as we tell people about Jesus. And Father, as we close with this song, may this be the declaration of our hearts on absolute objective truth. May we be able to stand in unison and say these things over and over and over because they're true. And Father, we are followers of our Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If this message blessed you and you now have a desire to follow Jesus, I encourage you to go to scottshill.org slash next steps so that we can follow up with you. Also, if you like the message, feel free to share it on social media with your friends and family. God bless.